Life and Work of Karl Marx by Max Bedacht. March 14th, the revolutionary proletariat of the world commemorates the 50th anniversary of the death of Karl Marx. It was the life work of Karl Marx to uncover for the masses of exploited the conditions of their emancipation and to participate in their struggles. Marxism stood its historic test not only in the daily struggle of the working class during the last 50 years, it stood it especially in the Great Russian Revolution. Under the leadership of Lenin, the masses of the exploited in Russia marched victoriously along the path of Marxism through revolution to victory. Those scientific pygmies, those professional apologists for capitalism, those political traitors to the working class, who have in the past and are still now trying to disprove or revise Marx, must either close their eyes to or must vilify this gigantic historic monument to the correctness of Marxism, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The revolutionary qualities of Marxian science are attested to not only by the fact this science has within itself all the elements for its own further development, but that its very essence is such further development. It is not a dogma. It is the social science not only of an epoch, but of society. That is why the Leninist developments of Marxism are an integral part and a legitimate product of Marxian science itself, produced by the greatest Marxian since Marx and Engels. Social democracy, in its efforts to prove that its treacheries are still, quote, socialist, maintains that in order to be Marxian, one must drop Marxism now, in the epoch of 20th century capitalism. According to their theories, Marxism itself presupposes the development of a new economic science under new conditions. Unashamed, they tell the workers that, quote, the picture Marx made two generations ago of the social and economic conditions of his time cannot be transferred to the social and economic conditions of our day, end quote. This contention is in itself a denial of Marxism, because Marxian science is not merely the analysis of capitalism, but also the methods of his analysis and the revolutionary conclusions from it. Marx's methods are still applicable. To be sure, today they must be applied to a capitalism much further developed. Marx's conclusions about the facts and methods of the class struggle are still correct. Of course, one must recognize shifts in the class relations since Marx's time. But Marxism not only recognized, but foresaw them. Despite all desecrations of the very corpse of Karl Marx by social democracy, it will, on the 50th anniversary of his death, drop a hypocritical flower on his grave. Disguised as mourners among the disciples of Marx, social democracy tries to escape recognition as the murderer of Marxism. The present use of Marxian phraseology by the Second International in line with their use of, quote, left phrases to cover up their treacheries before the radicalizing masses only confirms their historical opposition to the revolutionary teachings of Marx. Karl Heinrich Marx was born in Trevis, Rhenish Prussia, on May 5, 1818. His father, Heinrich Marx, was a counselor at law. Heinrich Marx's conversion to the Protestant Church in 1824 was more a sign of his emancipation from religion than of a change of religion. 
At any rate, Karl Marx was never burdened by his father with any religious ballast. He received an excellent education. At the age of 16, he was prepared to enter a university. At first, he studied law at Bonn. It was his father's wish that he should follow his footsteps. At 18 years of age, he entered the Berlin University to continue his studies. Although again taking a course in law, he extended his educational excursions, especially into the realms of philosophy. An insatiable search for fundamental knowledge urged him on in his studies. Before he entered the Berlin University, he became engaged to Jenny von Westphalen. His bride was the daughter of a high Prussian official, Ludwig von Westphalen, and the sister of Ferdinand von Westphalen, who after the revolution of 1848, became one of the most reactionary ministers in one of reactionary Prussia's reactionary periods. Karl and Jenny did not get married until June 1843. In April 1841, Marx was made a doctor of science by the University of Jena. Meantime, he had become a member of the circle of intellectuals in Berlin, the quote, Doctoren Club. There, Marx was initiated into the mysteries of Hegelian dialectics. The dialectic methods of thinking introduced into German philosophy by Hegel were practiced in this club and developed. Hegel himself had been, and his pupils in the doctor's club, were idealists. But it was evident that dialectic thinking, resuscitated by Hegel from ancient Greek philosophy, would soon find its material base and then inevitably become the method of revolutionary thinking. During his service in the army in Berlin, 1841 to 1842, Frederick Engels, the lifelong friend and co-worker of Marx, also became attached to that club. The friendship of Marx and Engels, however, dates from Paris, 1843 to 1844. Already before his father died, May 1838, it had been agreed that Karl would follow his scientific desires and prepare for a professorship. The rapid development of Marx towards revolutionary conceptions on the one hand and the hothouse reaction in the Prussia of those days decisively closed the door for Marx to a professional career. In October 1842, he became editor of Die Rhenische Zeitung, a bourgeois daily in Köln. This paper had come under the influence of the young Hegelians to whom Marx belonged. The five months Marx spent on that paper were decisive for the further development of Marx. His sense of realism taught him quickly that in judging the question confronting him there, the misery of the peasantry, the questions of free trade and protective tariff, etc., could not be solved by philosophical phrases. He was forced to study economic science. He also came into contact for the first time with, quote, a weak philosophically colored echo of French socialism and communism, which did not satisfy him. Resigning from the paper started Marx on a physical and ideological journey which landed him in London and communism. First, he spent one year in Paris, where he came in close contact with the leaders of French socialism. There, he had occasion to study it at first hand. There, too, he and Engels recognized their common scientific and political conceptions. Expelled by the government from the territory of France, 
Marx moved to Brussels. During the Brussels exile, the German Revolution broke out. Both Marx and Engels, who had joined Marx in Brussels, rushed back to Germany. Both became intensely active in the revolution. Through the efforts of Marx and New Rheinische Zeitung, was established in Köln, with Marx as editor. This paper will forever stand as a classical example of a revolutionary paper. The German Revolution of 1848 was a bourgeois revolution. Marx started from the base of this historic reality. He agitated, advised, directed where he could, always with a view of driving the revolution onward. He did not see his historic mission in unconditional support of this bourgeois revolution, as the Mensheviks did in Russia in 1917, and as the Social Democrats did in Germany in 1918. His attitude towards this bourgeois revolution was stated clearly in his declaration that his ideal was not the black-red-gold republic, but that on the basis of this republic, his opposition would really only begin. Social Democracy Today, father and defender of the present black-red-gold republic, would send Karl Marx where he lived, the way it sent Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, whose crime was opposition to the black-red-gold November republic. After the suppression of the revolution, Marx was expelled from Germany. He returned to Paris, but the bourgeois republic, the product of the 1848 revolution, was no more tolerant with him than had been the product of the 1832 revolution, the Orleanist monarchy, a few years before. Marx had to leave France and finally settled in London. His family had, in the meantime, grown by three. Two daughters, Jenny and Laura, and a son, Edgar. Into this period from 1843 to 1849, from the editorship of Marx, on Die Rheinische Zeitung, to the beginning of his London exile, falls the development of the fundamental conceptions and theories of scientific socialism. Marx began with a criticism of his own conceptions and those of his friends, the young Hegelians. Already on Die Rheinische Zeitung, he had recognized the hollowness of their phrases. He learned that social problems were not merely problems of philosophy but of politics. He entered a period of self-criticism and self-orientation. This meant for him a period of intense study, especially of economic science. He started where the young Hegelians had left off, after David Strauss and Bruno Bauer, in their analysis of the life of Christ and the origin of the gospel, had established clearly that Christianity was not the producer, but the product of its epoch. Marx investigated into the mechanics, into the material forces that produce such phenomena. It was in the course of these studies that he coined the epigram that, quote, religion is the opium of the people, end quote. Marx showed that the hopes of people for heaven are merely reflections of their misery on earth. Unacquainted with the social forces, the masses feel that they cannot physically escape their misery. So they try to escape into a, quote, Spiritual, end quote, happiness. The product of such flight is religion. Fight against social misery, said Marx. Change this miserable world into a better one. 
remove the need of fleeing from a physical misery into a, quote, spiritual, imaginary, or hoped-for happiness, and religion will lose its base. While it lasts, it is not only the reflection of misery, but also one of the causes of its continuance. Religion, the flight from miserable reality to happy imagination, helps to maintain the misery-producing realities. Therefore, religion serves the ruling classes. It is the opium with which the ruling classes dope the masses into voluntary submission to their exploitation. Those that fence with religion without fighting the social conditions that produce it are either only pretending or they are Don Quixotes, fighting windmills. An atheist of this kind may be a hopeless reactionary, but no real revolutionist can be a deist. In his consideration of the philosophy of Feuerbach, another of the young Hegelians, Marx formulated the principle that was his guide through all his life, in the study room as well as in his revolutionary actions. Quote, The philosophers have only interpreted the world differently, but our job is to change it. End quote. Marx pointed out how weak the sprouting materialism of these young Hegelians was. He showed that they created a dualism between thinking and the thinker, between thinking and the object of the thoughts. This results in a dualism between theory and practice. Thus, they come to the conclusion that the material world influences thought. But they sidestep the revolutionary conclusion that thought, that thinking man, also influences the material world. Such vulgar, mechanical materialism cannot overcome inactivity toward miserable social conditions. It feeds it. Dialectical materialism, on the other hand, sees man as the product as well as the creator of his surrounding. The dialectic materialist is the revolutionist. He is the man who tries to understand in order to change, and not merely in order to know. Marx said, quote, The materialist teaching that men are products of conditions and education, that different people, therefore, are products of different conditions and different education, forgets that conditions are changed by men, that the educators, too, must be educated. End quote. This vulgar materialism divides society into two parts, one of which dominates the other. It is the materialism of capitalism. It explains why there are classes, but it does not prove the need, nor does it provide the methods to abolish them. The study of economics, as well as the close analysis of bourgeois socialism in France, ripened Marx's economic theories. These theories are the fruit of Marx's dialectic materialist methods of analysis. They are the result of an application of the rules of social life to the history and to the analysis of the facts of this social life itself. That makes the conclusions unassailable. That makes Marxian science as effective and as revolutionary productive today as it was when first applied by Marx himself. The first comprehensive presentation of his theories were given by Marx in a criticism of one of the leaders of French petty bourgeois socialism, Pierre Proudhon. The book appeared in the summary of 1847 under the title The Misery of Philosophy. It was written in the French language. In this book, Marxian dialectic materialism is counterposed to the idealistic materialism of Proudhon. 
There also, the commonplaces of vulgar economy are dissolved into their essential nothingness by a scientific socialist analysis. The utopian social medicines of the social misery, people's banks, currency based on production, etc., are brushed away as empty, petty bourgeois phrases. The class struggle is put in their place. The exploitation of the workers by the capitalists is proven. The social development of capitalism is outlined as one progressively increasing the misery of the masses. Marx shows that the conditions of the emancipation of the workers is the abolition of all classes, and that for this abolition, and until its completion, there will and must be a struggle of class against class, climaxing in a revolution. Proudhon was against political action. In answer to this, Marx, for the first time, developed his theory of the state. He pointed out that the struggle of the workers must be a political struggle because, quote, political power is the official expression of class antagonisms within bourgeois society. The state power, whether lodged in democracy or in monarchy, is the main tool of the bourgeoisie in its struggle against the workers. The workers must wrest this tool from the bourgeoisie and use it for their purpose. In the course of their struggle for existence, the workers are continually hit with the weapon of the state power, wielded by the bourgeoisie. Thus, they gradually learn the need to conquer it. Their daily struggles for existence are, thereby, turned into political struggles directed against the bourgeois state. In their highest stages, these struggles become struggles for power. They turn into a revolution. The workers' object of the revolution must be to take hold of the political power and to rebuild its apparatus, the government, so that they can use it as the capitalists did, for their class purpose. The capitalists used it to suppress the workers. The workers must use it to suppress the capitalists. The capitalists use it to maintain and defend against the workers their ownership and control of the means of production. The workers must use it to take away from the capitalists the ownership and control of the means of production. In a letter to his friend Weidemeyer, Marx formulated the conclusions from his theories of the class struggle and the character of the state as follows. Quote, First, the existence of the classes is dependent on definite historic struggles of development of production. Second, the class struggle must necessarily lead to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Third, this dictatorship itself is the bridge to the abolition of all classes and to the establishment of a classless society. End quote. Marx ends this polemic, which is at the same time the first extensive positive presentation of Marxism, with a sentence which social democracy will not quote in its anniversary orations. Quote, until then, that is, until the abolition of classes, on the eve of every rebuilding of society, the last word of science will be struggle or death, bloody war or nothingness. The problem is inexorably formulated thus. In 1847, the most important and best-known document of Marxism was published, the Communist Manifesto. It was written in behalf and as the program of the Federation of Communists in London. It was drawn up jointly by Marx and Engels. 
It is a masterpiece of a revolutionary document, educational in its theoretical base, arousing, directing, and leading in its practical revolutionary conclusions. This document tells the workers that men make their own history, but they do not make it just as they please. They have to work upon the circumstances they find, and they have to fashion material handed down to them. Here, workers are the circumstances. Here is the material you have to deal with. Now go and make your own history. Fashion your own world. In understanding this task, you have nothing to lose but your chains, but you have a world to gain. The ringing signals of the Communist Manifesto to fight have ever been a spur to the working class in their struggles, as the theories of the document have been their guides. In 1859, Marx's Critique of Political Economy was published. It was a forerunner of his main work, Capital. In this book, capitalist economy was subjected to a searching criticism. Marx shows that the accumulation of capital and wealth, which capitalist apologists ascribe to the thrift and intelligence of the individual capitalists, is in reality the product of exploiting the workers. It is accumulated out of unpaid labor. The worker sells his labor power, his wages are the price for it. The price, in the main, is determined by the cost of production of labor power. The cost of production is the cost of the maintenance and reproduction of the carrier of that labor power, of the worker. This cost expressed in hours of labor is considerably lower than the hours of labor the capitalist gets out of the worker after he buys his labor power. The difference is unpaid labor, is surplus value. This unpaid labor reappears as profit in the pocket of the capitalist. Starting from this proof of workers' exploitation by the capitalists, capital then proceeds to analyze all of the mechanics of capitalism. It shows how profits is the dominating principle of capitalism, that honor, ethics, law, etc. are subordinated to profit. But it also proves that this system has within itself the source of its revolutionary destruction. Objectively, these forces spring from the progressive inability of capitalism to serve social purposes. The products of unpaid labor accumulate into ever-increasing new capital, into new machinery of exploitation. It also accumulates as surplus product in a planless production. This surplus, produced by a worker in an effort to make a living, comes back at him in the form of overproduction and deprives him of his living. This contradiction between the living interests of the masses and the profit interests of capitalists leads to an ever-sharper struggle, class struggle. The workers learn that their social problems are political problems. They learn that to solve these problems, they need political power. They fight for this political power to the point of a revolutionary victory. Then the workers will organize their state and will use their power to liquidate all classes by reorganizing production from the base of private profit to that of social usefulness. The first volume of Capital was published in 1867. It remained the only volume published during the lifetime of Marx. Volumes 2 and 3 were published by Engels after the death of Marx. The fourth volume was printed under the title Theories About Surplus Value. This fourth volume of Capital comprises 
in itself four volumes. September 28, 1864, Marx participated in the meeting in St. Martin's Hall in London, which gave birth to the International Workmen's Association, the first international. Marx soon became its leader and moving spirit. He remained in this position until the development of the international labor movement itself had antiquated their first international organization of the working class, and it stepped off the stage of history in 1873. Since then, this first international has found a legitimate heir, the executor of its will, the leader in the struggle for the emancipation of the working class from capitalism, the Communist International. The heroic struggle of the Paris proletariat in 1871, the Paris Commune, found in Marx its defatigable advisor and defender. In his criticism of the Commune, Marx gave the most positive formulations of the needs of the proletarian struggle. In his letter to Kugelman, April 12, 1871, Marx pointed out that the possible defeat of the commune would spring out of two mistakes. First, the commune did not energetically enough and in time start open civil war. Second, the Revolutionary Central Committee was troubled too much with a democratic conscience and abdicated to an elected commune before it had accomplished its revolutionary task. The revolutionary Soviets in Russia did not make the mistake. Instead of abdicating to the constituent assembly, they made the assembly abdicate to the Soviets. Marx's characterization of the Paris Commune in his letter to Kugelman is an historically anticipating condemnation of German social democracy of today. Said Marx, quote, The present insurrection in Paris, even though it may succumb to the wolves, the swine, and the contemptible hounds of existing society, is the most glorious deed of our party since the June insurrection. Compare with these stormers of heaven in Paris, the slaves of heaven of the Prussian German Holy Roman Empire, with its posthumous masquerades, smelling after barracks, churches, petty feudals, and especially Philistines. End quote. Those cowardly traitors of the working class who always defend their unwillingness to lead the workers into struggle because of the danger of defeat were told by Marx in his defense of the struggles of the Paris Commune. Quote, of course, it would be a very comfortable thing if a battle needed only to be accepted with a guarantee of victory in one's pocket. End quote. Marx pointed out that the defeat of the Paris workers in their struggle was less of a calamity than would have been the demoralization of the proletariat in case it had not accepted battle. How correct this is, is shown by the inspiration the militant working class of the world derives to this day out of the heroic, though defeated struggles of the Paris proletariat in 1871. The judgment of Marx on the Paris Commune has the most immediate bearing on the proletarian struggles of today. When the revolutionary proletariat prepared in Germany in 1918 to conquer the citadel of bourgeois power, the state, Kautsky falsified Marx's theory of the state and suppressed his criticisms of the commune. Kautsky made the failure of the commune to organize civil war, and the haste with which the revolutionary central committee abdicated to the elected commune, 
The Virtues of the Revolutionary Rising of the Paris Workers. Marx had declared them to be their most serious mistakes, which led to defeat. Kautsky desired the defeat of the working class. This desire was the source of his falsifications. This desire is also the source of falsification of Marx by the comrades of Kautsky, social democracy. Lenin considered this the most decisive point of Marxism. In State and Revolution, Lenin pilloried the renegade Kautsky and restored revolutionary Marxism. The importance of Marx's criticism of the Commune in this connection was attested to by Lenin in his advice that Marx's letter to Kugelman should be put up in every worker's home to have it constantly before his eyes. Its conclusion to the workers is, conquer the state, conquer it in war against the bourgeoisie, establish your political dictatorship. The limits of this article do not permit the giving of a full and comprehensive outline of the theories of Marxism. It shall be the duties of a truly Marxian commemoration of the anniversary of Marx's death to publish and popularize Marxian literature for mass study. The letters we have of Marx contain a deep insight into the active political life he led. They are a testimony to the self-sacrificing, revolutionary services he rendered to the working class under the most difficult conditions. Suffering and sick, his family short of the most necessary things, he nevertheless kept to his chosen task. They give a picture, too, of the heroic, loving and devoted comradeship with Marx of his wife Jenny. Sickness was a frequent guest of the family. Death of children and no money even to have them buried depressed them. But always and everywhere, Carl and Jenny were with mind and body in the struggles for the emancipation of the downtrodden. Only the unselfish, always ready friendship of Friedrich Engels made the life of Marx possible. It is next to impossible to view the life and work of Karl Marx without at the same time considering the life and work of Friedrich Engels. However, the limits and purposes of this article demand the impossible. Beginning with 1852 and for some 10 years, Marx was European correspondent for the New York Tribune. His pay, a beggarly few, few dollars per article, represented an important part of Marx's income during this period. This correspondence, some of it written by Engels, contains brilliant analysis and commentaries on the political events of those days. Continuous, intensive work under the greatest difficulties undermined Marx's health. For years, he was subject to acute suffering from liver trouble. Later, an acute bronchial ailment aided to his sufferings. At the age of 65, on March 14, 1883, one year after the death of his wife and two months after the death of his most beloved daughter, Jenny, he fell asleep in his easy chair, never to wake again. Words spoken at his grave by Marx's lifelong friend, Engels, we quote here as the best appreciation of the life and work of Marx. Engels said, quote, An immeasurable loss has been sustained both by the militant proletariat of Europe and America 
and by historical science in the death of this man. The gap that has been left by the death of this mighty spirit will soon enough make itself left. For Marx was before all else a revolutionist. His real mission in life was to contribute in one way or another to the overthrow of capitalist society and of the forms of government which it has brought into being to contribute to the liberation of the present-day proletariat, which he was the first to make conscious of its own position and its needs, of the conditions under which it could win its freedom. Fighting was his element, and he fought with a passion, a tenacity, and a success such as few could rival. He has died, beloved, revered, and mourned by millions of revolutionary fellow workers from the mines of Serbia to California, in all parts of Europe and America. His name and all his work will endure through the ages. End quote. Leninism is the Marxism of the epoch of imperialism and of proletarian revolution. To be more precise, Leninism is the theory and the tactic of the proletarian revolution in general, and the theory and the tactic of the dictatorship of the proletariat in particular. Revolutionary theory is a synthesis of the experience of the working class movement throughout all lands, the generalized experience. Of course, theory out of touch with revolutionary practice is like a mill that runs without any grist, just as practice gropes in the dark unless revolutionary theory throws a light on the path. But theory becomes the greatest force in the working class movement when it is inseparably linked with revolutionary practice. For it, and it alone, can give the movement confidence, guidance, and understanding of the inner links between events. It alone can enable those engaged in the practical struggle to understand the whence and the whither of the working class movement. Stalin. Thank you for listening to this reading from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram. Join us on Discord, support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes. <laughs>